This reading is John 7, verse 14 to 29. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. This is the word of the Lord. So already we're beginning to see Jesus as a little bit more animated and a bit more action-packed than perhaps we might originally have thought. But at the same time, he is a faithful God. Heavenly Father, you're faithful in every way. And you said when two or three meet in your name, you're there in the midst. And we ask that you would minister to each one of us now as we turn to your word and learn more of you in your name. Amen. Do please sit down. So as we've already uh, said, we're starting a series looking at the person of Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did Jesus do for us? What does he mean to each one of us? And of course, we've just finished that series on telling our story. And what we found was that we each have a story. And that story has been impacted by God. And God's story and our story are interwoven as we meet with other people, as we brush up against them, and as we share bits of our story with them. 
And it's a powerful message. So powerful, I thought we really ought to then look at the person of Jesus so that we know more fully the person that we're talking about. And then once we've done that, over these next uh, four or five weeks, we'll be in a much better position at the beginning of Advent to wait in real expectancy for the coming again of Jesus Christ as we celebrate his birth at Christmas. So that's sort of where this series fits. That's the context of it. And I wonder what sort of picture of Jesus you have. Because if you're like me, uh, you tend to find it easier either speaking to someone or praying to God if you have this sort of picture, an image in your mind. Uh, It helps to build up some knowledge and understanding. Uh, We can begin to unpack how they might react to different circumstances. But as we've already uh, discovered, sadly, of course, there is no image of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you find that slightly surprising or just disappointing. After all, there are lots of images, aren't there, of that sort of period. There are kings. There are celebrities. The great orator, name of Ulimitele. We all know him, clearly. But he's got a statue. There are statues on the, and engravings and carvings on the side of tombs. All sorts of people had statues. It's from those statues and scenes that we learn a little bit about what life was like in those days. We know what clothes they wore, what ceremonies they went to, and all those sorts of things. But Jesus doesn't fall into any of those categories. He was a celebrity, but not a celebrity that they wanted to honour. He was a king, but not the sort of king that they wanted to honour. He had no tomb for himself. He had no money for self-promotion. In fact, the... uh, the rulers of that time, the authorities, were just desperate to hush him up and keep it quiet. He was something of an unwanted troublemaker, rebel without a cause, perhaps. He was an inciter of the common person. He drew crowds around him when he was speaking, and both what he said and what he did was alarming to them. All of this we know. How do we know it? Well, actually, we know it clearly from the Bible, but we know it from other writers of that time as well. Have you heard of the name Josephus? I suspect many of us have heard of Josephus. Have you heard of Tacitus? Oh, you see, Mary's still with me. Great! What about Gaius Tranquillus? He was the uh, chief secretary to Emperor Hadrian. And what about Pliny the Younger? I suspect we've heard of him too. Well, that's, that's four people, all of whom wrote about Jesus Christ. And if you go to the Babylonian Talmud, there is a whole passage about this person, Jesus, who was crucified on the eve of the Passover. Now, that's not the Bible either. But it's still writing about Jesus. All those events that are written about in the Bible tie up 
with the rulers, the authorities, the governors, the circumstances of the time. So it's sort of cross-referenced. Now if Jesus therefore was a real person, so what? Why are we bothered about Jesus now? Surely life has moved on. We've learned a bit more about life since then. But you see, there are some people that change history. Adolf Hitler, for one, changed history. I watched uh, a film last night about Alan Turing. Apparently, because of the Turing machine, probably about two years of the war was shortened and 14 million lives were probably saved. That man changed history. The Turing machine, of course, is now called the computer. What about Karl Marx, Martin Luther? We could go back further. We could go back to Mohammed, Krishna. What about Hammurabi? How many people here know who Hammurabi was? Come on, 1800 BC, it's obvious. He wrote a lot of law codes, laws which are still in existence, amazingly. We've got no image of him. 1800 BC, and we don't disbelieve anything about him. And yet, we disbelieve Jesus Christ. So why are we talking about Jesus Christ? For many, the turning point of history, I say many, for every single person here, you will have seen something of Jesus Christ this morning. You've probably heard his name this morning, often by a swear word. But who's looked at a clock this morning? Or looked at probably their cooker or a computer screen and seen the date? The date is defined by the birth of Jesus Christ. He's the central character in the most popular and largest selling book of all time. He sparked widespread changes to our beliefs, our laws, our behaviours, more than the world has ever known. Jesus Christ, this person in history who has changed our life 2,000 years later and still does. Jesus Christ, who was a miracle worker, he was an orator, he was a revolutionary thinker, he was a teacher a prophet, an inspiration, frankly, an interference. He was a challenge and so much more. When you look quite closely at what Jesus did, there come into all sorts of focus, all different contradictions, things that perhaps we don't quite understand because, well, because Jesus claimed to be God. Was he deluded? Was he just dangerous? Or was he divine? Was he the deity that the Jews were waiting for? And some of those contradictions, have we not noticed them? He came in humility, not in power. He came in weakness, not in strength. He came to give and not to take. He came to do right 
and not wrong. He came in sacrifice, not in victory. He came to serve and not be served. He came in peace, not in argument. He came in love. Love not for himself, but love for other people. Love not for reward, but for restitution and redemption. One could go on and on and on. Of the sort of person that we think of as great, and then we see the person of Jesus Christ, who truly is great. And because of all those differences, because of this big claim right in the heart of it, that he was God... We're driven to Jesus Christ and we have to make a decision. Was he deluded or divine? Can you be both at the same time? You should be shaking your heads vehemently at this point. Any God that I want to believe in is not going to be deluded. He's divine. He's God. So we begin to see that that comfortable view of God and of Jesus Christ needs to change. This wasn't a person of convention, but of challenge. Our understanding and our experience of Jesus is far too often moulded by the world in which we live in. It's free from persecution. Free to choose. It doesn't matter what faith you have. In fact, it doesn't matter if you've got no faith. You're all honoured. You're all loved. True. But Jesus confronts every single person. And he certainly confronted people in our passage at this time. You see, at this time, large swathes of the earth were ruled by just a very small number of nations, actually. All except for the troublesome Jewish nation, who were still waiting for their Messiah. And it didn't matter that the Romans were all over them. They still held firm that the Messiah would come. But this Messiah was not what they wanted or expected. In fact, as we'll find out in these next few weeks, nothing about Jesus is normal or expected. Coming as a baby to an unknown town, an unknown date, no announcement, no glory, no fanfare. The Roman consul was terrified. What of a baby, please? Herod. Herod was so terrified, he authorised the killing. In fact, he authorised the killing of somebody virtually every day of his life, apparently. But this time, it was a whole population. Anything under two. Any male child under two should be killed. Jesus had attracted followers from distant lands. Then he was taken to the temple, and Simeon and Anna both lift him up and say, this is the Messiah. And they prophesy over him. So why do we need to consider Jesus? I'm going to read you just one paragraph from Philip Yancey's book. If you haven't read it, please do. I think Philip Yancey is a great author, and this is one of his best. I am not writing a book about Jesus because he's a great man who changed history. I'm not tempted to write about Julius Caesar or the Chinese emperor who built the Great Wall. I am drawn to Jesus irresistibly because he positioned himself as the dividing point of life. My life. 
I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God, he said. According to Jesus, what I think about him and how I respond will determine my destiny for all eternity. That's how important Philip Yancey thinks this question is. Who is Jesus? And it's the same in our passage. You wondered when I was going to get to our passage, didn't you? I know. And here we are. Because John chapter 7 is a challenge at whatever point you want to dip into it. And it's a challenge to the authorities and the people of the time. Jesus held back from going to the festival. And about halfway through, because it lasted several days, he went up and he sat and he listened and he waited. He already had death threats over his life. And then finally Jesus stands and teaches the people and they're amazed. And at his teaching they are divided. Some think he was a good guy. Some think he was amazing. Some think he was a great teacher. Some clearly think he was the Messiah. And some think that he was a nobody. He just doesn't fit our expectation of the model for the Messiah. And so he's got to be the wrong person. He was born as an illegitimate, born to poverty. No formal training, not even a rabbi. A carpenter, friend of fishermen, daring to speak to us in front of the t- in the temple challenging our perceptions i find the phrase in verse 24 quite arresting i don't know if you do stop judging by appearances and instead judge correctly that's what jesus said and if that's not demanding and challenging what is every single person here stop judging by appearances and judge correctly who is jesus Jesus did not fit the mould. And as we've said, our tradition is different. So we sometimes miss quite how radical he was being. And that's why over the next few weeks we're going to dive into these scriptures. And we'll see from the context of the time quite how dramatic this was. Interesting, isn't it, that they do not challenge his doctrine. At no point do they say what you're saying is wrong. What they say is you're the wrong person. They challenge his person and not his doctrine. They challenge where he's from. We know you're from Galilee, from Nazareth. And of course, God God doesn't come from there. He comes from the line of David from Bethlehem. Oh dear. Error number one. How does Matthew start his gospel? With a genealogy. Why does he do that? Because Jesus Christ, in his genealogy, is from the line of David, born in Bethlehem. Jesus himself challenges them. He makes the point, again, that his doctrine is not from himself, it's from the person who sent him, God. And in verse 28, he says, you may know where I'm from, you've pigeonholed me, but you don't know the person that sent me. 
And he turns to those people in the temple and he challenges them to one layer further. And he says, you're, you're upsetting, uh, you're getting upset because I, I healed someone on the Sabbath, saying that I don't follow the rules, but I do follow the rules. You're the ones that don't. I've followed all, all the rules. The implication being that he is a sinless person. Only one sinless person can be, and that's God. It's incendiary. Do we begin to get the feeling of quite how challenging Jesus was? The question that the crowd asked themselves is the question that each one of us should ask ourselves. Is Jesus the Messiah? And if not, what more things should the Messiah do? If the Messiah came in front of us now, what would we expect of that Messiah? Will the Messiah do more miracles than Jesus? Will the Messiah speak more clearly about God? Will he teach more positively about God? Will the Messiah love more than Jesus? Seek to serve more than Jesus? Restore relationships with God more effectively? Ascend to heaven more graciously? Empower followers more fully? Free people from spiritual oppression more adequately. Provide comfort more completely. Offer more healing or redemption or restoration or hope or comfort or love than Jesus. Jesus says in this passage, I know God. I come from God. I am God. If you want a relationship with God, listen to me. Is it any wonder that Jesus was seen as a radical in his day and is no less radical today? I think this series will challenge our thinking and our perceptions. We're going to have to ask ourselves what sort of God we believe in. And what sort of picture we have of Jesus Christ. We're on a dangerous path because he's a dangerous person. But is he just dangerous? Or is Jesus deluded? Or is he divine? That is our question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, as we rest in your presence and as your spirit touches our hearts, we pray that those scales on our eyes may already be falling away. Because we believe in you historically. We believe in what you said. We believe that you are God. And we believe that you're part of the story of our lives. So, Father, touch us afresh with that spirit. Draw us to yourself today and the days ahead. 